I'm Elena Becker, and this is P.S., the Puget Sound podcast, where we're talking with members of our community about their Puget Sound experiences. Today, we're recording from Moonyard Studio in Tacoma, Washington, and our guest is Kira Zaff, a junior from Philadelphia. Kira, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me here. I am delighted to have you here, and I have all sorts of things that I want to talk to you about. But the first thing I would like to know is, um, how does somebody from Philadelphia make it all the way out to the Pacific Northwest? Um, Well, I actually wasn't in Philadelphia at the time. I was at a boarding school in Massachusetts. Where did you go to school? Uh, The John Dewey Academy. Mm -hmm. It was actually in a castle. Oh, my goodness. Really? Yeah. (laughs) What a delightful place to go to school. I don't know if it was delightful exactly. I don't know that boarding schools would be described as such. (laughs) But it was certainly an interesting transition. Sure. And you... Even though you're at boarding school in Massachusetts, you are switching coasts. You're coming across the country. Was that something you knew you wanted to do? Was it something that was a little bit daunting to you? It was actually something I never considered. Yeah. I didn't really consider location aside from the fact that uh, my other main option was Earlham in Indiana, which, as some people might know, is entirely populated by cornfields. <laughs> So it was a better choice, I suppose, um, in terms of the flora and fauna out here. And you didn't have any hesitation about coming from the East Coast to the West Coast? Not particularly. I mean, I like it out here. I enjoyed it out there, but the temperature here is much more mild. (laughs) Than New England? Yeah. Yeah, the winters are a little gentler uh, when you come West. Yes, although last winter... Uh, that ice storm. We was got some snow. Fantastic. You liked it. Yeah, I got to ice skate down the road. Did you really? Yeah. Did you have <laughs> skates here? Yeah, I figure skated out oh. in Philadelphia, so decided yeah. to bring them out here. Well, that is a wonderful coincidence because, as listeners of the podcast may know, and certainly you and I know, um, it almost never ices over here enough for that to happen. Pretty much never. I had a couple of friends who had never seen snow. Someone from Arizona or Hawaii or California. California, yeah. Who wanted to reenact Christmas movies in the snow <laughs> before deciding uh, a mere five minutes later that snow is cold. Right. It is. Um, it was very exciting when we had all that snow for, what, a week, a week and a half? Mm-hmm. It hung around. It was um, briefly exciting and then rapidly became inconvenient. Yeah. But enough to do lovely things like make snow people or ice skate down the road. Most certainly. Kira, you're a junior. Will you talk just a little bit about how have the previous three years unfolded for you? Are you doing the things that you envisioned yourself doing when you thought about coming to college? Have there been surprises in the process? I would say that uh, something I sort of didn't intend to focus on, but definitely ended up happening here was um, joining the music program. Mm. I'm not a music student, as in I don't have a major or a minor, but the opportunities to sing or to play an instrument are just so amazing that I felt like I had to take part in that. And what do you do? I sing in uh, Dorian's, the Mm -hmm. choir. Um, And I'm part of Curtain Call, which is our musical theater group. Oh, what happens with Curtain Call? So we put on performances from different 
pretty much on stage musicals um, for the community. It's pretty low, low effort, low budget, but it's a ton of fun and you get to hear all sorts of different people sing and just a great time for everyone. Were you involved in theater at all prior to coming to college? Um, I did some costume designing, yeah. which is sort of my main thing, and I'm sure we'll get into yes. that later. But Well, actually, let's go ahead and get into it right now. So one of the reasons that I am so especially excited to talk to you is I sort out who I'm going to have on the podcast from all over, from all kinds of sources. And one of the ways that I did it is I asked the folks who administer our summer research awards for a list of research projects and started to scan project titles and in some cases abstracts and saw, okay, what might be um, exciting to talk about. Your summer research project from this last <laughs> summer is, or at least at the time that you applied for the grant, was titled Succession Anxiety Through Clothing in the Court of Henry VIII. It's changed a little bit, but the the idea is still the same. Will you describe to me just the, the concept of your project? What are you looking at? So um, originally I was looking at how sumptuary laws, which are laws around what people were allowed to wear, mm -hmm. um, especially overdressing people right. during that time period, and how it related to portraits— and specifically how Henry VIII regulated or didn't regulate clothing in his wives, in his children, um, and his relationship to Francis I, who was the king of France at the time and a great rival of his. And how were you preparing to study that? What did you actually do to investigate those questions? Um, so part of what I did was I contacted a bunch of museums in London to see if any uh, clothing artifacts still survived. Mm -hmm. And the resounding answer was no, but we have shoes. Mm. <laughs> uh, shoes are very durable. They're t they tend to be made out of wood, leather, really durable products that yeah. even if thrown into a river, we're going to find them four sure. or five centuries later. They'll come out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And is that, did that feel sufficient for you to do your project? Definitely not. Yeah. Um, I imagine there's a whole separate project just on 16th century shoes. But the portraiture, the tapestries, the jewelry that remained was just stunning. So given that that's the resource that you have, then how, what are you doing once you know that to conduct your project? How did you spend your summer? Um, so I started by collecting primary and secondary sources. Um, I was looking at inventories, and I actually went to the British Library. You traveled, in yes. other words. Yes. So you went to England. I went to London, To yes. London, yeah. And you are in London for the purpose of doing this project. Yes. And you go to the British Library. Yeah, the British Library and a couple of other libraries, too, to try to find these texts that that I found, but once I found them, I realized they're written in 10 people's different handwritings mm -hmm. in Gothic style, and I'm letter by letter piecing out what it's saying because there's no standardized format of spelling. At that time. At that time. Yeah. And for folks who don't know, just to back up a little bit, when you go into a library like that with an idea and a research question... What's the process of even figuring out what those texts that you're looking for might be and how to find them? 
Um, some of that was where the Puget Sound librarians here were incredibly helpful. Mm-hmm. I worked one on one with one of our research librarians to just go through all sorts of different texts to pinpoint exactly what period I was looking at yeah. and what sorts of sources I wanted. I really I wanted first-hand accounts of what people were wearing, what people were buying, what sorts of cloth were going on the market. Yeah. And from there I was able to find the medieval texts that I wanted to look at. And just to give sort of a general sense of categories, what kind of texts are we talking about? Are we talking at that time letters? Are we talking, I mean, what are you actually, what do you end up looking at? Um, So I looked at some letters at the British Library, but primarily I was looking at inventories Sort of, so when we go on an expedition to France, per se, Mm -hmm. what did we bring with us? Right. Sure. And what do those documents tend to reveal? What did you find? Um, They tend to reveal a certain amount of anxiety about what materials people had. So um, this is sort of wills. Yeah. Uh, Who is getting what? What am I willing to my daughter versus what am I willing to my son? Right. And what is that going to mean going forward? Because all cloth in that time period was incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. People would mortgage their houses for a large piece of cloth. Right. Because it's all hand woven. It's all hand embroidered. Sure. And to outfit your children in maybe some of the things that you were wearing would have been on a lot of people's minds. Yeah. And so when people are traveling or when they're making inventories or wills, how does that anxiety manifest itself? Are people willing more fabric items to their sons than their daughters, vice versa? Are those making up a disproportionate percentages of, um, I don't even really know what I'm asking, I guess, of (laughs) of people's wealth repositories. What does that look like to someone living at that time? Something that I found was that it was a sort of early form of female empowerment because from very early on, people were clothing their wives and the wives were on display. So the dowries that women brought with them from other countries to marry into England or from England to marry into other countries, because England is really my source material, and that's what I'm looking at, they could feed a small city Hmm. um, just on the cloth itself. Yeah. So I ended up looking at Catherine of Aragon and Hmm. how her clothing decisions, while some of them were important in and of themselves— she ended up she ended up pawning her clothing and pawning her jewels in order to feed a retinue of hundreds of people right. for years. And could afford to do that off of clothing and jewels. Yes. One of the things that I'm interested in that I'm hearing you say is that this seems to be fairly constant across the continent, that people coming from other countries into England are coming with significant clothing and jewelry in their dowries, and folks leaving England to go elsewhere um, 
the same, so that that sort of is understood as a form of currency between countries. And I'm particularly interested in that because we're talking a time when there is not necessarily a lot of European cooperation. <laughs> what does that, do you think, say about the norms of the continent or even forms of exchange or um, commerce around Europe at that time? I would say it says different things in different periods. Yeah. Um, for example, when Henry VIII went to France to visit Francis I, they exchanged doublets, they exchanged hose, they exchanged all these different forms of clothing so that when they met as two kings, they would be dressed exactly the same. That's fascinating. So, and even so, there were all of these kind of things that they did within that framework yeah. to one-up the other person. Right. <laughs> like, can you think of an example offhand? Um, so the example I'm sort of thinking of is the Field of Cloth of Gold, okay. where Henry VIII put up a tent that was embroidered with gold thread, <laughs> like a gigantic tent. We're not talking Puget Sound outdoor program tent. We're talking <laughs> a tent larger than two houses. So in other words, this is insane extravagance. This is ridiculous. This is yeah. fountains running wine. Right. And this goes on for many days. <laughs> and Francis, of course, rebuffs this and <laughs> wants to be even more extravagant. So even if they're not able to do it through their clothes, they'll find another way. But it's so interesting to me that there is sort of this gesture made of, oh, we'll be equal in our clothing, even as they both intend not to do that at all, to actually attempt to one-up each other in these other areas, that clothes are still the sort of most prominent symbolic area. I would say clothes. I would also say it's presentation. Mm. It's however you present yourself. Um, for example, Henry and Francis, went before they met, agreed, neither of us are going to cut our beards until we meet, hmm. which is one of the silliest things I've ever heard. <laughs> but... Between two kings, very important. Right. Catherine of Aragon, who was Henry's wife at the time, did not like his beard, wanted him to cut it, cut it, got him to cut it. Prior which, to the meeting. Prior to the meeting, which nearly started a war. Really? <laughs> yeah. It was only kind of backed off of the treaty dissolving, was only backed off of because the French queen had the... The guts to say their love is in their hearts, not their beards. <laughs> Direct quote. <laughs> but you write that that's such a remarkable area of symbolism to think about that having that much weight and gravity. And it's, it's not just back then. If you think about now, people are wearing all of these different brands. Mm -hmm. Our clothing may be much more disposable than it was back then, but people still spend thousands of dollars on a pair of shoes. And actually, one of the things I've been thinking about while we're talking is not just what, um, I, it seems wrong to say average people or regular people for someone spending thousands of dollars on a pair of shoes, but I've been thinking also about um, prominent leaders in the way that we've been talking about Henry VIII and other um, 
royalty in Europe that when the current British royal family takes a world tour, they'll try to wear clothing that are made by designers from the countries or in the countries that they're visiting. And so there is still quite a bit of symbolism read into what those folks wear uh, in addition to what they say. Most certainly. And it it's not just with the current royal family. It's in our own country. Mm-hmm. We're looking at what the Kardashians are wearing. We're looking at what Donald Trump wears. We're looking at all of these different symbols because in some way they reflect the authority of the person wearing them. Hi, I'm Tori Hansen, Assistant Director of Admission at Puget Sound, working with students in the Mid-Atlantic and in the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as all of our transfer students. If you like what you hear on this podcast, you can learn even more about Puget Sound by coming to campus. Schedule your visit at pugetsound.edu visit. We'd love to host you. I don't want to ask you to speculate too far outside the boundaries of your research, but why do you think that is? Right? Do you think it's because of this history of clothing as an item of particular value and we've hung on to that? Do you think there's something about clothes that are sort of innate to the somewhat modern human experience? What I'm interested in particularly is how clothes are something that has been often looked at as a sort of feminine thing and mm-hmm. how in the Middle Ages that really wasn't true right? because of their extreme value. Yeah. So I would say... Clothing's value has definitely changed throughout time, but its value in terms of presentation in how people view you, even meeting you for an interview right now, right. per se, I think about what I want to wear, what I, how I'd like to present myself. Right. What do you think, is, is there a point in history that scholars recognize as being the time that clothes sort of shifted from being an extremely valuable purview of everybody discussion point for kings into being viewed as a more feminine pursuit? I would say that some of that shift happened Elizabeth, Elizabethan and post-Elizabethan mm-hmm. just because that's the rise of the jacquard loom. That's when cloth is suddenly right. easily accessible. Right. And I'm, again, I know nothing about this, so to go right ahead and speculate anyway, I would imagine perhaps, again, with the Industrial Revolution, that you, you see that continuing. As soon as we can computerize cloth, yeah. there's a whole world of possibility. Right. And... I think part of the reason we see it as a women's pursuit is because women were often the people doing some of the sewing. Hmm. Not always, though. Right. We have these enormous cloth guilds in the 15th, 16th century, which are run by men. Hmm. But it was one area where a woman could be a guild member. Even at that time? It wasn't very common. It might be a widow of some prominent sure. previous guild member, but it was possible. It, possible. And in I, again, I I'm going to sort of stereotype here, but in a way that it wouldn't have been for a carpentry guild or a smithing guild or yeah, not not as easily. Right. People had an image of the working woman at home weaving cloth for her husband, but it was also it was something that everybody did. 
every household had to spin cloth, and that was the woman's job to spin cloth. Well, spin the thread into cloth. Sure. For her household. When does it shift from being an individual thing? It's your job to create cloth for the household or for the family into being it's a sector of commerce. I would say the global economy, at least for England, yeah. really doesn't start until Henry VII. Mm. Because prior to that, in the Wars of the Roses, England was really seen as a little bit of a backwater, at least for established countries like Spain or Italy. Hmm. Sure. So why would we look to England for anything, in other words? For the same reason that we look to England because of the scholars that have been there, because of the great books which have been been written there. But at that time, Spain and Italy are not thinking that way, or they are? They wouldn't have been thinking that way, no. So I'm looking at the Catherine of Aragon, a Spanish princess marrying into the English royal family is a really big point of transition for cloth Hmm. and the clothing that she brings with her translates almost directly into land holdings in England. And then she gets these land holdings and she uses it to buy cloth. That's fascinating. Nowadays that would never happen. Right. Is there a similar... Uh, what's the word that I want, inflection point in the role of cloth as England starts to build a much more global presence. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, sure. I guess what I'm thinking about is if when we see the geopolitical transition of Catherine of Aragon marrying into the English royal family, if that one act can create a ripple effect, do you see similar... um, Processes or examples of the value of cloth as England continues to assert itself more globally? Most certainly. Um, It really depends on whether you're looking internationally or just nationally. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say that the value of cloth changes all that much during that specific time period, but we see England suddenly thrust on it to the larger European stage. Yeah. Maybe through cloth, maybe because it was a very smart political move. Sure. But some of what my research has been on is the biographers of that time, the Mm. contemporaries. They're writing these extreme histories, sort of what's happening day by day in the Tudor court. Right. And that's an extreme amount of detail. And they're not noting who's talking to one another necessarily, but they're noting what everyone is wearing. (laughs) Right. That's the thing of value to know and understand. And you could tell who was in power. You could tell who was connected to a specific family. You could tell sometimes almost anything about a person just through their clothing. And these biographers are not spelling that out in footnotes, or are they? Does that question make sense? They're not spelling it out in footnotes, so it's the job of the historian to go through and try to see, well, this person is wearing white today. Does that mean they're a York or a Lancaster? Right. That's exactly what I'm asking. <laughs> and what is that process like for you? How do you, I mean, how does the historian figure that out? Where do you begin with such a vast sea of possibilities and information? 
Something I really rely on is my own uh, past, I suppose, reading a lot of historical fiction Mm -hmm. about this time period. Yeah. And just an interest. I have to be interested in the fact that that the color yellow, for example, may not mean what it means to me. Right. Um, there was this whole controversy because on the day of Catherine of Aragon's death, Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII danced in yellow. And there was a whole idea that maybe yellow was a Spanish morning color. Oh. Which it's not. There's no... No thought behind that, but... But people speculated that it may have been? People speculated that it may have been, that it may have meant something other than we are literally dancing on this woman's grave. Right. (laughs) Um, In the same way that white was a French morning color, it could have been. There's no evidence, but maybe somebody did have some evidence and we just haven't found whatever that is yet. That is a fascinating web of intermingled possibilities and influences and lived experiences. Because we just we just don't know what could have been. Uh, nowadays, I'm sure people would. I noticed when I was in England, at least, that people frowned a lot at what I was wearing. Just. Hmm now walking through the streets and it wasn't until later that I realized that uh, my skirt didn't reach below my knees and that was not really acceptable in some of the museum settings huh but of course as a dumb American I wasn't able to to read that cue but it is I mean we continue to have unwritten rules in the same way that if you don't know what the morning colors are (laughs) right that's that's also what non-navigable situation. Yeah, it's not something that you would necessarily know. And I just, I wish to delve into some of that world uh, because it is somewhat glamorous to think that your fortunes could be made on what you were wearing a specific day. Kira, you have um, sort of teed me up perfectly actually for my next question. Do you intend to continue to carry this research and these research questions forward? Oh, most certainly. I had this amazing experience to be able to meet the top research, some of the top research scholars in my field. Um, I went to Hampton Court Palace and got to meet with uh, some of the people at the Royal Robes Collection. Mm. And I don't know why this number comes up, but they're really, they're aren't more than 11 people in the world in the field that I'd like to study. Mm -hmm. And so finding those people, being able to talk to them, being able to think about how clothing, how sumptuary laws comes into play is really spectacular. And I would love to take it further. However, 11 jobs is kind (laughs) of difficult. (laughs) How did it happen that you were able to meet with those people at all? I didn't, of course, I haven't met with all of them. Sure. But But with any of them. Some of it's because it's such a small community that they're so excited to hear about a college student who is interested in what they are. Did you, I mean, did you just email these people and say, I'm really interested in your work and I'll, I'll be in London? Some of them emailed me, actually. Oh my 
wow. In fact, I was re- so I was reading a newspaper article um, one day about how there's an art. Uh, article of clothing called the Bristow hat. Okay. And it's considered one of the oldest workable, like you could still wear it as a hat. Sure. Uh, garments that's in some of these collections. I was just reading an article about it and I get an email pretty much the next day inviting me to visit this hat. And it's because I sent an email out to a couple of different museums and I guess somebody forwarded me to right. this woman. Some something happened so that these people are all in contact and next day, yes, I'll be there on Tuesday. Wow. What a remarkable experience. It was really stunning. It was amazing to have people affirm what I've been thinking about studying my whole life. Yeah. Really, from the time I, I like to think that I was just a little kid in princess clothing, <laughs> and I really am still that same person. Kira, we conclude all of our conversations by asking each of our guests the same four questions. The first question is What's your favorite place on campus? I would say that it is the tree outside of Jones. <laughs> the big one between Jones and McIntyre? Yes. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of the Game of Thrones tree. Yeah, similar. And it's just, I think, I ended up playing Game of Tag in the tree <laughs> at one point, And just ever since then, I've really enjoyed sitting under it, sitting in it. <laughs> Reading a book up there, and I like to watch the world go by. What are you reading right now? I just finished a book called Catherine about uh, one of the uh, mistresses to Edward, uh, to John of Gaunt, mm. um, which is a very interesting book. It brought in a lot of medieval history and some Chaucer, too. Best place to eat in Tacoma? Gateway to India, hands down. <laughs> Lastly, Kira, what makes Puget Sound special? I would say it's the fact that you walk across campus and people say hello to you. That was what really caught my eye as a freshman, that people are very kind. And it's not just a surface level kind. You could ask people directions and they'd really stop and talk to you, even if they had a class in three minutes. <laughs> There's just a genuine warmth to the atmosphere here. Kira Zaff, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to our guest and to you, the listener. You can follow Puget Sound on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of P.S., the Puget Sound Podcast. Mm-hmm.